Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you this morning. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Jake Box. I'm a lead pastor here at Midtown Church. So glad that you're joining us. As it's been said a few times already, let me just say it personally. Uh, Mom's happy Mother's Day. We're so uh, thankful for you. You're such a blessing to your families and to our church family. And uh, we just uh, so, so uh, thankful for you. Hope that you've been celebrated today and that that celebration will continue the rest of the day and this whole next year, because you certainly deserve that. Hey, I also just want to, before I get into the message, want to just uh, take, a, take a minute to, to uh, acknowledge that I know that this day isn't always a, a real happy day for everybody. Uh, I think about my sister who uh, lost her child a couple years ago, and just know that Mother's Day can be just a very painful day for so many other. Either you lose your mom or uh, you lost a child, uh, miscarriage or whatever it, it might have been, or just uh, you mourn the, the, the loss of, a, of the relationship that you wish that you had with your mom, um, or, you, or you mourn, um, you know, the, 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 the seems like a maybe even a potential death of a dream where you're, you're not able to have, have children. And, and so, and it's just, I just want you to know that we, we feel that pain. We acknowledge that. Uh, I want to remind you of one of my favorite passages, uh, Genesis 16, when, when God comes to Hagar, who, who's uh, weeping barely for her mistreatment, and uh, God speaks uh, to her, and it leaves her with saying and giving God this name. He, she, she calls God, you're the God that sees me. And I just want to remind you, that that's who our God is. He is the God who sees you, and he sees you being an awesome mom for all those moms out there. And he sees you if you're grieving uh, your mom or the loss of being a mom. And so I just want to remind you of that and just say we're here to worship that guy because he's awesome and he loves you. And so let me pray for you and uh, then we'll jump into this message. Father God, we, uh, we do give you praise because you are the God that sees us. You know us and, and you uh, care about us. And God, this is it's incredible. And God, we, we thank you uh, for our moms. One of the ways that you express care for many of us is through uh, the gift of great moms. And uh, Lord, we give you praise for them. May they be celebrated today. And Lord, we, we ask that you would comfort all of us by your word and by your spirit this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, let's uh, jump into uh, the message today. We're continuing the series that we started a couple weeks ago that we're calling Family Matters. And the uh, kind of a play on word, but the primary family that we're talking about in this series is the family of God. That one of the uh, things that Jesus accomplishes for us through his death and his resurrection isn't just that our sins are forgiven, but also that we are actually adopted into the very family of God. That God becomes our father and then we become his children, which makes us brothers and sisters. It makes us family. And so we're saying as a church, we are a family and we need to know how to love each other well as a family. And just like any other family, you, can know, you need to know each other. You need to know how to care for each other, how to cheer each other on, how to support one another to be a loving family. And so we said, let's try to grow as a loving family. And so we give these six, six weeks to kind of focus on specific ways that we can encourage and love and support different groups within our church family. Uh, specifically uh, singles and marrieds and parents. And so we said, set aside two weeks to talk about singles and two weeks to talk on marriage and two weeks to talk on parenting. And so the last two weeks we've been talking on singleness. Today we're going to move into the marriage topic and talk about how we can love each other well 
as family, by encouraging those in our church that are married, and so that we can, as married people, know how to honor God in that stage, in that, in that area of life that he has us. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Now, uh, before I jump into it, though, let me just encourage those that are single in the room, please don't check out, all right? Don't be pulling out your phones, all that stuff. I encourage the, the married couples not to pull out their phones whenever we talked on singleness. Do the same for you guys. And the reason why, let me give you three reasons why real quick. One is because I know that uh, not all of you, but many of those that are single in our church hope one day to be married. And so hopefully this talk will be helpful for you in that it helps you understand and think biblically about what is marriage? What is this thing that you might desire? And it can also help you think intentionally about what kind of person you might be looking for to get married uh, to one day. Also, it could help you as we study God's Word, what He says about marriage. It can help confront any wrong thinking that it comes uh, towards marriage, perhaps even some fears that you might have or some over-romanticizing you might be prone to do or idolizing about marriage, you may be prone to do. So God's word may let, let it speak to you. It'll be helpful for you even where you are right now as a single uh, adult. And so the other thing, the reason to uh, pay attention here if you're single is because, uh, like I said, we married people, we need your help. Like we, we're a family, and so we need to have each other's back and cheer each other on and be able to have people, the more people we have in our lives who are for our marriage and are encouraging us towards truth, the better. We need that. And so for the sake of our family, uh, listen in so you can know how to encourage others that you know. And then the third reason why to uh, lean into this, and really this is a reason for all of us to pay attention to this topic this morning, is because of what Hebrews 13 verse 4 says. And that verse, it begins with this statement. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Which doesn't mean everyone must get married. We saw that the last two weeks. But it does mean that marriage should be held in high regard for everybody that is a follower of Christ. And you think, okay, well, wait, why why is that? Why should we all hold marriage in high regard? Well, One of the main reasons why is because marriage is just one of two uniquely divine institutions created by God. Marriage and the other one being the church. And that because God is the one who created marriage, that marriage wasn't something that you know, a couple of cavemen or cave women came up with in the Bronze Age and sitting around the fire and said, hey, well, what about, what about this idea, marriage? And that's not how it came about. It, marriage came about as a result of God, his creation of it, and him giving it to us as a gift. And if God created marriage, he's the designer of marriage, then marriage is only going to thrive if we follow his design for it. And you think about if you buy a car and you decide, you know what, um, gas is so expensive. You know, I think that I'd just rather have my car run on water. And then you're going to just fill it up, the gas tank, with water. Don't do that. That will not work out. Your car will not run. It will be destroyed. Well, guys... Why? Because you didn't create the car. You didn't create it to, to run on water. If you did, you could make a lot of money. But uh, instead, someone else created the car, and they designed it to work a specific kind of way in order for it to thrive. Well, guys, the same is true. If God created marriage, he designed marriage, then it's going to thrive when we operate within it and think about it according to his design for it. 
And so we say, okay, God, since you created it, let us hold it in high regard and let's study by revelation how you designed it to work best so that we can function within it in a way that honors you and where we're, we get blessing because we are seeing it thrive the way that it's actually designed to work. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at a couple passages to study how did God design marriage? How did he design it to work? And uh, we're going to do that by looking at two key passages. The, the primary passage on marriage in the, all of the Old Testament, you really could say the whole Bible, which is in Genesis 2, 24. We're going to look at that verse. And then we're going to also look at the primary uh, uh, verse or passage uh, on the Bible in the New Test in the Bible in the New Testament, that being Ephesians 5, uh, 21 through 33. And so we're actually not going to get all, all into that passage, but we're going to hit both of those to look at, okay, God, how did you design marriage? And uh, so let's do that. Before we do that, let me pray one more time, and then we'll jump in. Father God, we ask that you would speak to us and you'd give us the humility to listen, that we would hear how you design marriage that we could honor you in it, and Lord, that we could be blessed by following your design. Lord, I pray that you would give our church healthy, joy-filled, beautiful marriages. Lord, that even what you say to us today could be a step towards that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, first point. How did God design marriage? Well, he designed marriage to be a covenant relationship not a consumer relationship. That's the first point. God designed marriage to be a covenant relationship, not a consumer relationship. Now, let me define those terms a little bit. What's a covenant relationship? Well, that is a relationship founded on an unconditional promise. Covenant relationship is a relationship founded on an unconditional promise. It's, it sounds like this. It's a promise that extends into the future. It sounds like I promise to love you for better or for worse in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, until we part by death. That's what it sounds like. That's, that's the idea of a covenant relationship. Now, a consumer relationship is a relationship founded on or operates with a conditional contract. Okay, a conditional contract. It's an agreement that says, hey, I'll be with you as long as you keep your end of the deal. I'm committed to you as long as I'm getting what I want out of this relationship. Now, I will love you as long as you're loving me well, as long as you're making me happy, as long as you're meeting my needs, then I'm in this thing. It's really not too dissimilar than how we treat our cell phone carrier, our relationship with our cell phone carrier, right? Where you just say, okay, look, I'll stay with you, AT&T, or whoever it might be, as long as you're giving me a good deal. It's not too sacrificial on my part to stay in this relationship. Like, you're giving me a good deal, and you're meeting all my needs, all my, you know, minutes, all my data, and all, all of that stuff. And as long as that's happening, then I'm in. But if I ever find that there's a better deal out there, or I feel like you're not treating me as good as I deserve, then I'm out of here. That's a consumer mindset. And God's, God's created marriage to operate with a covenant mindset, not a consumer mindset. But let me ask you, when you survey marriage in our culture today, which mindset do you think most marriages seem to operate with? It's important for us to be anchored 
to God's word for us to see, God, how did you design marriage to work so that we're not swayed by the, the fads, the trends, the thoughts of our culture? Because our culture moves more and more towards that consumer mindset, right? And so let's look. Genesis 2.24, the key preeminent passage in all the Bible on marriage and see how did God really design it. This is passage, this verse comes when God actually creates Eve. He brings Adam and Eve, he creates the woman, he brings them together in relationship. And this is the verse that describes the type of relationship he brings them to. He says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. It really does amaze me just how much uh, incredible information is packed into this short little verse. It's just like this verse is what really describes marriage in the Bible, and it's so short, and yet it's, you know, there really is a ton of meaning. I mean, you see here that the, the, the purpose of marriage, you can see here the, the priority of marriage, you can see here that, that kind of that, that promise that defines marriage, which is what I'm going to talk on in a second here. You, you can also see uh, just the, 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 the satisfaction, the, 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 the desire for oneness, what we're trying to aim for in marriage. It's all here in this, this verse, and I don't have time to unpack all of that. So really, what I want us to look at in this idea of marriage as a covenant is to see how we see that from what God says when he institutes marriage in the very first marriage ceremony, the promise that defines marriage. Here's, here's where we get the idea that marriage is a covenant and not a consumer relationship. It really comes out of this one word or these two words in our translation, uh, hold fast. Again, looking at it, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Now, uh, if we were to put that in kind of modern-day vernacular, it would be that the man would leave his father and his mother and marry his wife. That's the word, hold fast, marry, be brought, united to. But in the Hebrew, the word that we translate hold fast literally means to be glued to, to be glued to. So if you really want to do a literal translation of this verse, then you'd say the man will leave his father and mother and be stuck with his wife. But that doesn't have a very romantic ring to it. Though I do say that to Krista quite often when I'm real pain. I just say, bam, I'm so sorry you're stuck with me. But you are stuck with me. You know, but that's the idea. All right, so, but this word hold fast, it doesn't just mean to be glued to it. It also speaks of a type of, of binding that causes us to be glued to, and that is this covenant binding. We see this fleshed out later in Scripture, like in Malachi 2.14. Uh, this word is used when it, when it says, uh, when it describes a, a man, it's told that his spouse is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. And there's that word again. Or another example, albeit a, a negative one, is found in Proverbs 2, verse 17, where a, a wayward wife is described as having left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant, there it is, she made before God. I share that because that one talks about your covenant made before God. And what's interesting is that what we see in Scripture is that this marriage covenant, this being glued together, being stuck with, is this covenant, this promise that's made both on a, a horizontal plane and a vertical plane. It's, it's horizontal in that you, you promise yourself to your spouse, and you do that promise before God. And so it's, it's, it's a two-way promise. It's a covenant to be stuck together, to be glued together, 
to hold fast to one another. That, guys, is what God created marriage how, uh, for the relationship of marriage to function as a covenant, not as a consumer relationship. Now, here's the, here's the issue. Though that might be helpful on an abstract side, it, it is just kind of abstract because, unfortunately, in our culture today, we have very little to point at to really give us a great example of what is a covenant relationship. Sadly, in our culture today, we have begun to commodify almost everything. You commodify your friendships. You're in your friendships just as long as you're getting something good out of it. If not, things get friction or whatever, then you're out and you just write each other off. You do the same with, with like roommates. You do the same with um, even our like midtown communities or MCs. Oftentimes, even the church itself. As none of that is healthy because relationships were never meant to be commodities. But that is especially not helpful when it comes to marriage. But unfortunately, because we have done, we've, we function that way in so much of our relationships in the world today, it's hard to get a great picture of, well, what does a covenant relationship really look like? Thankfully, though, there is, for the vast, you know, vast majority, uh, uh, there's one relationship in our culture today, this still paints a beautiful picture of what covenant relation looks like. And that's the relationship between a, a, a parent and a child. And so, like, because it's Mother's Day, let's, let's talk about this from a mother's perspective because perhaps they're the best at demonstrating this. And that is that in, in a relationship between a mom and her child, I tell you, like, that is such a beautiful picture of a hold fast, glued together, covenantal relationship. Like especially, we have a lot of ladies in our church right now who are first-time moms. Like uh, this first year, you have gotten to taste this kind of relationship. And it is perhaps most clear for the first-time mom. Because when you have a child, an infant, a baby, you have just met the most needy person that you've ever met in your entire life. And you just give and give and give and give, and you don't receive anything except a dirty diaper in return. Like, there's not a whole lot that you're getting back from this little bundle of joy, if you, you, know, if you can stand calling it that. But it's just like you give and give and give. Now, why don't moms come to a point where you just hold up that child after it's been crying for like, seems like seven years, but it's just like three, three weeks old, and, you just, and you're holding it, and you're like, okay, you know what? We're, we got to have a talk. This is not working. I just give and give and give, and I'm just not getting anything in return. And so either you change your ways and you start meeting my needs, or I'm out of here. Why don't we operate that way? Because moms have chosen to hold fast to their child. That's a covenant relationship. And friends, what God is telling us is that that is how he designed marriage to operate. That's how husbands and wives were meant to operate. Where you don't say, hey, you know, you're not meeting my needs, and so I'm out. You're saying, no matter what, I'm here to give and give and give. Now tell me, married couples, is that how you think about your, your relationship? Is that how you operate within your relationship? 
That's how God designed it to work. It's a covenant relationship. Now, the second way that God designed it to work and really flows directly out of that, it's actually a little bit more of a just a practical step from that, is this, that God designed marriage to be a whole life-giving relationship, not a life-taking relationship. Though I know sometimes marriage can feel like it's life-taking, but God designed marriage to be a whole life-giving relationship. And, and here, like, Again, this just flows from the first point, but it really flows exactly off the heels of Genesis 2.24, where we left off. So let's go back to that verse. It says there, um, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And then hear this, and they shall become one flesh. Now, as it says, once, once the husband and wife hold fast, they shall become one flesh. Now, most people immediately connect becoming one flesh to sex. Why? Because sex is great. But that's not the only thing that is meant by this. In fact, it's just, it's just a part. It's a part of it, but only a part of it. That this idea of becoming one really speaks to becoming entirely, completely vulnerable to the other. To say, all of me for you. I give all of me to you. My whole life to you. And when two people do that, they give all themselves to them, then they become one. You think this includes both emotionally, spiritually, financially, materially, and yes, physically. Where you say, there's nothing that I'm holding back from you. I'm giving all of myself to you. When two people do that, they become one. Now, since I mentioned sex and since we're talking about marriage, let me go there real quick and just remind you guys that last fall I did a talk on, on sex and God's design for sex. And one of the things that we talked about there is that God, uh, one of the primary things God tells us about sex in Scripture, one of the most important reasons why he gives for us to keep sex, to reserve sex within the marriage relationship is because this is God's intended desire and design for sex, that it is a part of and a demonstration of whole life giving to your spouse. And that when you use sex to do something else other than that, then you cheapen it. And sex, the act of, lacks any kind of integrity. See, God wants us to reserve sex for within marriage, not because he has too low a view of sex, because he has such a high view of sex. That sex is supposed to be a, a way to demonstrate and or an act of giving yourself fully to another. But if you are holding any part of yourself back, financially, emotionally, spiritually, materially, then it's cheapened. And you actually have to steal your heart against God's intended result for sex that causes you want to say all of me. You have to steal your heart against that if you're not willing to give all yourself. And that ends up eroding sex's very power and purpose that's meant to be a helpful glue within your relationship. Now, that's all I'm going to say about that. But I just want to remind you that that's a part of this whole life-giving aspect. But certainly not the only part. God designed marriage to be all about giving, not taking. Now, we see that in this idea of wanting to become one. 
But that's made even clearer in Ephesians chapter 5, the the key New Testament passage on marriage. And so let's go there. And we don't have time to spend in all that passage. But what I want to do is just look at the bookends, the first part of it and the very last part of it to give us this sense of how God designed marriage. And if you look at the very first part of it, then what we see in verse 21 is this verse. This is how Paul begins to transition to talk to marriage. He says this, uh, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now you think, okay, Paul, wait, what, you're going to transition and talk about marriage. Why, why would you begin that way? Well, he begins that way because marriage was designed to thrive when a husband and wife say, hey, I'm here to serve you. I'm here to serve you. That's how God designed it to thrive. Where you say, I'm not demanding that you meet my needs. I'm not here saying, you love me. You care for me. You serve me. But instead, the the posture and the attitude is, no, I'm here for you. I'll care for you. I'll serve you. I'll love you. That so often in, in our relationships, there's this dance where you're trying to put yourself ahead of the other. No, me first. No, me first. Me first. Me first. But what the Bible tells us when he starts talking about marriage, it says, no, no, no. The dance is completely different. It's the opposite of that. It's, no, no, me below you. No, I'll serve you. No, 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 I'll serve you. No, I'll serve you. No, I'll serve you. It's, it's submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's here, I give my whole life for you. No, 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 I give my whole life for you. No, I give my whole life for you. And in that, it's an incredibly profound, beautiful taste of heaven. Because that's how God designed marriage to work. But that's difficult, isn't it? (laughs) And all these married couples say, yeah, yeah, that sounds good on a Sunday. That'll preach. But yeah, try living it out in the parking lot as we walk out and we decide where we're going to eat today. You know, it's it's difficult, right? Chris and I love doing uh, premarital counseling. And one of the things that we share when we do premarital counseling is something that stuck with us whenever we ourselves went through premarital counseling. And and that is uh, that just confronting the lie of our culture that the ideal marriage is a 50-50 marriage. You heard that phrase before? You know, it's the whole idea of you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You know, I'll I'll do, I'll take out the trash this time, you take out the trash this time. I'll let you pick where we eat tonight, I'll pick where we eat tomorrow night. I change the last dirty diaper, then you change this one. It's that whole idea, like, and that's the kind of put forward as the ideal marriage. It's 50-50, you just meet each other halfway all the time. Guys, let me just tell you, that is a dangerous and very unbiblical perspective on marriage. That that is like perfectly, a, a perfect illustration of the consumer mentality of marriage. And let me tell you, it just doesn't work. Like I shared a couple weeks ago that my grandfather just died, and I was thinking about this a lot, but my, uh, my grandmother, Linda, had uh, just took care of my grandfather this last year of his life. I mean, just served him and just like, it's just a beautiful picture of love. But if, if at any point she said, no, no, this is 50-50 and I'm not getting, like he can't even get out of bed, but he, she's saying like, look, look, this is not working. We agreed on 50-50. Like what happens? Like, it just, like you see, it is not practical. What do you do when, when your spouse gets sick? What do you do when your spouse goes through a very difficult season at work? What do you do when you lose track of who did what last time? 
Who's keeping track of the tally board? Guys, it just doesn't work out. And Chris and I like to point out, based on this verse, based on Philippians 2, is to say, no, 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 the biblical picture of how we relate to each, one another in marriage is, is really 100-100. Or put another way, it's 100% unconditionally. Where you say, look, I'm going to give all of myself all of the time, no matter what. And again, when you have two people who do that, then it just couldn't, the relationship just couldn't be better. It couldn't be more fun. But God, the way that he designed marriage, is that even if one isn't doing that, you still do that. You submit to the other out of reverence for Christ. Me for you, life-giving, whole life-giving, not life-taking. Of course, that raises a big question, right? And that big question is, um, uh, how? <laughs> I'm sure it raises a bunch of other questions too, and I don't have time to get into those, but if you'd like to come up and talk afterwards, I'd love to help you because it does raise a lot of questions. But I think the biggest question is, okay, well, uh, that sounds great, but how do you really do that? Especially, how would I ever do that if my husband or if my wife isn't committed to also serving me? They just walk all over me if I just give and give and give. Like, how am I really supposed to love in that way? That's a great question. This passage answers that question in two ways. The first way it answers it is seen in its context of verse 21, and the second way that it answers it is seen at the very end of verse 21. So let me hit on those two things real quick. The first is in the context of verse 21. And it's helpful to recognize, and I encourage you this week to go home and read this passage, but all the verses leading up to verse 21 are all about being filled with the Spirit. They're all about being filled with the Spirit. And immediately up to verse 21, Paul is giving some examples to show what does it actually look like? What's the characteristics of someone who is filled with the Spirit? And the very last characteristic that he mentions is this. It's someone who submits to the others in reverence for Christ. And so don't miss this. This is the whole argument, the whole flow leading up to this verse. It is, if you're going to submit to, your, to the other, if you're going to serve your spouse, to give of yourself for your spouse, if you're going to do that, it's going to absolutely require supernatural, literally supernatural ability. It's going to require you to be filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. Without that, you can't do this. If you have, if you're filled with the Spirit, then this is a sign of that. You will submit to the other. Guys, how is it possible? You have to be filled with the Spirit. Because here's one of the things that the Spirit does. The Spirit gives you a Spirit-empowered selflessness. The best way I know how to describe what that is Something I've heard, I can't remember who I heard it from, but selflessness is, a spirit feels selflessness. It's not thinking of, of yourself in a lesser degree, like you're not important, but that it's thinking of yourself less because you understand that you've been given what you need already from God. The spirit filled selflessness. It's not thinking of yourself as less than, but just thinking of yourself less. And the way that the Spirit allows you to do that is that the Spirit speaks truth into your heart about who Jesus is and what he's done for you. 
that Jesus teaches this in John 14 and John 16, that this is one of the main works of the Spirit, is to, to lead us into all truth. And that as the Spirit speaks into our hearts that you are loved by God, you are secure because of God, you're significant because of the love of God, as you are receiving the love of God being poured into your heart by the Spirit, as Romans 5 says, then you have, then you have the ability to love others, even if they're not loving you back. Then you have the ability to submit yourself because you have been given what you need. That's the first part of this. How is this possible? It's impossible without the Spirit. It is possible. You are empowered to live this way by the Spirit of God, but only by the Spirit of God. The second way this is possible is seen at the very end of verse 21. And it says, submit yourselves to one another out of, what's it say? Reverence for Christ. Reverence for Christ. Now, what, what does reverence for Christ mean? Well, reverence for Christ simply means to... Um, uh, reverence means to be in awe of or to be uh, controlled by, to be overwhelmed by, or like in amazement of. And so here's what it means to, be out of, to, to do this out of reverence for Christ. It means really this, it, it's just the follow through of what the Spirit's work is. That as the Spirit reminds you of how you've been loved by Christ and brings that truth home to your heart, then there comes a point where you are then moved out of awe out of reverence for what Christ has done for you, that then that compels you to want to serve others. Like, here's what, here's what it looks like. It looks like you saying, okay, right here, I'll, I'll share personally. This happens often. But I found the only way for me to sustainably serve Krista is if I'm filled with the Spirit and living in reverence for Christ. But... I am so thankful to our gracious God that he has given me everything that I need to love my precious wife well. That he's empowered me by his spirit and he's compelled me by Christ to get up off my lazy butt and take out the trash or engage the hearts of my kids or to serve her in another way. How? Well, because I, I sit there on the couch and I hear my kids fighting <laughs> Or I'm aware of all these things that need to get done around the home. And I just think, no, I just like to watch another YouTube video or whatever it might be. I'm reminded. I think, okay. By the Spirit who lives within me, by the grace of God, I hear him say, Jake, 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 do you remember what Christ has done for you? Hey, are, are, do you let's just think about how when you did not deserve, you did not deserve to be served. Christ left what was comfortable. He left the right hand of God in heaven. And he came to be born as a man, and not just any man, but a servant. Philippians 2 talks about that he died, not just any death, but death on a cross. That you could be made his son and be gifted his righteousness and be given everything that you need for life and godliness. And you have the entire, his entire inheritance is gifted to you. Do you remember, Jake, what Christ has done for you? And if I meditate on that, if I let the Spirit, if I listen to what the Spirit is telling me, then what I find is, you know what? Yeah. In light of reverence for Christ, how I've been served by Jesus in awe of him, I get off my butt and I go take out the trash where I really do engage the hearts of my kids. 
And I'm happy to do it. I'm compelled to do it because look what Christ has done for me. Guys, is this easy? No. Is this, am I perfect at this? By no means. But do I and do you have what you need to be able to submit yourself to your spouse to serve and give whole life-giving kind of relationship? Absolutely you do by the gift of the Spirit and by the gift of the gospel, what Jesus has done for you. It's possible. And God designed marriage to work that way. And when it does, like I said, when two, two people love each other that way, as he's originally designed it, and it's a taste of heaven because it's a picture of how God loves us, which gets to the very last point. I'm going to need to move super fast here, but that is that God designed marriage to be the penultimate relationship, not the ultimate relationship. You know, penultimate meaning uh, the last but one in a series or second to last. That God designed marriage to be the penultimate relationship, but not the ultimate relationship. What I mean by that is that God designed marriage to point us to the ultimate relationship, our relationship with him, which is the only truly true relationship that will truly satisfy us and provide the security and the love their hearts long for. You see, marriage, because marriage is awesome. It's an incredible gift from God. But no awesome thing in creation was meant to give you what the Creator alone is able to give. As, Paul, as the author Paul Tripp wrote in his book, All, he wrote, Every awesome thing in creation is intentionally designed by God to point you to the one who alone is worthy of capturing and controlling the awe, the longing, and worship of our searching and hungry hearts. Guys, this is why the Apostle Paul ends his teaching on marriage uh, with, the point, with this point. When at the very end, I said, just dressing the bookends, at the very end of Ephesians 5, uh, his teaching on marriage, he says this in verse 31 and 32. First, he quotes Genesis 2.24. He says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then in verse 32, he adds on. He says, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Again, there is so much that could be said here on that, on that point, but basically what I want to point out to you is that what Paul is saying is that marriage was always meant by God to point us to something more. That it was designed by God to tell us something about how he relates to us and how we are to relate to him. That marriage ultimately meant, is meant to serve as a signpost pointing us to God to grow within us a hunger for that ultimate relationship. How? Think about what we've hit on this morning. The covenant of marriage, the essence of marriage. That points us to how God relates to us, does it not? That marriage and its design is supposed to reinforce and remind us that, hey, this is how we are covenanted together. That's how God is covenanted with us in the new covenant. That it's not based on me doing enough, keeping my end of the bargain for our relationship to stay intact. No, it's intact based on what? The promise of God. What does God tell us? Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. May our marriage covenant remind us of the covenant that we have with God. Or think about the whole, self, whole life-giving aspect of how God designed marriage. Does that not point us to how God relates to us? 
that God gave himself to us. For God so loved the world that he gave. What did he give? He gave his son. That Jesus came willingly and gave his life, all of himself, his very life. That he was crucified, that he was forsaken by the Father, cut off from the love of God that we through his giving, could be brought in and be united to God. This is how God has loved us. And when we love in the self-giving way, it points us to the love of God. It's a signpost that causes us and can reinforce our reverence for Christ. We say, oh my goodness, how you're loving me reminds me of what Christ has done. It's so good. And this thing about the joy of marriage. The joy of marriage is to be but a foretaste of the ultimate union that we will have with God himself one day to remind us, to point us to the ultimate love, the one who really will love us with the love we've always looked for, who will really give us the security that we always needed, to tell us the significance that we're significant, like we've always needed to hear. We get that from God. So that we would then look forward to the day that we'll say in Revelation 19, 17, like I read two weeks ago, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. That's the day when we will enter into the ultimate relationship with our God. Till that day comes, let's pray, Revelation twenty-two seventeen. The Spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Marriage is great, but your spouse is not your Savior or your God, but empowered by the Spirit and in reverence to Christ, we can love one another in a way that points each other to our Savior and quickens our heart to say, may that day come. Come, Lord Jesus. That's the ultimate relationship the one that we were ultimately designed to enjoy for all eternity. Guys, this is how God has designed marriage. It's a covenant, it's not a consumer relationship. It's about whole life giving, not life taking. And it's a penultimate, not the ultimate relationship. May we operate under his design for his honor and his glory and for the good of our marriage because in his design, our marriage will thrive. We're going to end now by taking communion and coming to the table to remember that this is how God has loved us, that he has made a new covenant with us through Christ's blood to say that I never will leave you or forsake you, that my relation is completely based on what I've done for you, not what you've done for me. And as we take the bread and we take the cup, we remember that Jesus truly has given his whole life for us, that we could have life in him. And so let us be moved to worship him now as we take of the communion table and we move into our time of worship. If you would like to pray with someone this morning, I want to let you know we've got uh, Brad, uh, we've, got, uh, we've got Justin and John in the back and they'd love to pray for you during this time of service as well. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that you would show us how to apply what you, uh, your design for marriage. Would you give us grace for our spouse? Because none of us can get this right perfectly. Lord, would you um, encourage those in our, our church body whose marriage is struggling. May this not feel burdensome teaching, but uh, helpful. And uh, Lord, will you strengthen them by your spirit 
God, would you strengthen all of us by your spirit to live this out? We're not having to do this alone. In fact, we can't. Thank you for the promise that you've given us all we need in your son and in your spirit to live, to live out this as you designed. Lord, we love you and we thank you for how you've loved us. May you be worshiped in this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.